1: Welcome to the 129th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia.
0: And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is 10 tips for better ESI expert reports from Craig Ball.
1: Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors, PINow.com, and CaseFleet.
0: Today we're lucky to have as our guest our good friend Craig Ball. Craig's passion is to learn how things work so he can teach others. A compulsive tinkerer, Craig brags he can fix anything but the human heart. After decades trying cases as lead counsel, then becoming a certified computer forensic examiner, Craig turned a lifelong fascination with technology into a unique law practice limited to service as a special master in electronic evidence and discovery, subjects he teaches at the University of Texas School of Law and Tulane Law School. A prolific author and speaker, Craig's articles on digital evidence can be found at craigball.com and his blog, ballinyourcourt.com. It's great to have you with us again, Craig.
1: My pleasure. Thank you both. Well, Craig, your first tip about uh, better ESI expert reports is to answer the questions that you were engaged to resolve. I gather that's a, a pet peeve of yours, Craig. It is. And, and before
2: I explain what I mean by that, Sharon, I want to give a very quick background of what these are, these 10 tips. They're very much seat of the pants kind of things. A, a colleague of mine, an, an expert in lawyer and electronic Evidence asked me to speak with a person she works with who is going to be doing an expert report and hadn't done a lot of that and just kind of help them along. And before I had that conversation, I started thinking about. What are the things that I like to see in expert reports? What are the things that I've learned in my many, many years of writing these reports that I thought might be helpful? So for anyone listening who's looking for a guide for their own expert reports, please feel free to accept any of these you think are worthwhile and throw the rest away because they're (laughs) just something I came up with pretty quickly. So you asked me about answering the question that you were hired to answer. Now, that seems like a truism, but I've seen so many reports that I've read from examiners over the years that have just page after page of cables and screenshots and the kind of things that can be spit out by a forensic toolset without framing the issues in terms of the questions that typically my lawyer clients want answered. And sometimes you can't answer the questions or the question is posed in a way that it is too vague or or unanswerable with forensic artifacts. And that's fine. I say I can't address that and I'll try to reframe it or break it down in some ways so that I can take what I'm learning from the evidence and give it back to the lawyers in ways that they can apply it to the questions they face in court. So that's my first pet peeve, is figure out what you're being asked before you bloviate for page upon page, hoping that maybe something you'll throw out there will be useful. I love
1: bloviate, Craig. (laughs) Great word.
0: I predict we're going to hear many great words from Craig during the session today. You're right. I mean,
2: it'll be much of the do as I say, not as I do when I later talk about the language we should use in these kinds of reports. But I'm not making a report right now. I'm just being me.
0: Well, well Craig, your, your second tip was about not overreaching your, your expertise. And I, and I sense that you, you run across that quite a bit.
2: I do. I think most lawyers are are very considerate when you say, I, I don't feel I can address that. I don't feel I have the formal training or the experience or qualifications to express an opinion of that nature. But sometimes they're just so desperate to address a particular issue or or not have to hire another expert that they will push and push to try to get you to stick your neck out. Let me give you an example. I mean, I'm a certified computer forensic examiner, as you are, John. And I've studied a lot of accounting in college. Business is one of my majors. But I'm not a forensic accountant. I've done a lot of work in digital forgery. And I've looked at altered video and images. But I'm not a trained question document examiner. These are specialties I try to stay in my own lane professionally, and I commend it to other experts. Figure out where you have the actual provable expertise to meet the requirements of expertise, not just that very low bar that Federal Rule of Evidence 702 puts forward, but are you truly someone who should be in a position of answering hypothetical questions in that particular discipline?
0: Well, I think I have the solution to that, Craig. I experienced where the the lawyer actually showed up and he had the expert report already completed for me, so I didn't have to overreach. He already did it. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me about the old story when I was a
2: trial lawyer. Uh, It was told about in, in working with local counsel in the little small towns in Texas, there would be two different prices paid to the local council, the one where you provided the witnesses and the one where they provided the witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I've had that too where, and I don't mind that, you know, if, if a lawyer wants to put something down and says, can you support this proposition? If I can, I may want to put it in my own words, but if I believe it to be true and I can prove it by evidence, I don't really have a problem with them helping to frame the language, but it ultimately has to be something I can swear to Mm -hmm. and sleep on. Well,
1: it took us most of a night to get that report into something John could swear to. (laughs) He was not a happy lawyer. (laughs) But let's move to your third tip, Craig, which was to define jargon and share supporting data in useful, accessible ways. We find expert reports all the time that are just full of jargon. Why do folks do that? Sometimes the reports are impenetrable to anyone who's not an expert. Oh, I think there's a there are a great many things that
2: prompt someone to do that. A lot of it stems from insecurity or a lack of sensitivity to other people's education and experience. I think a lot of us who are experts often conduct ourselves more to impress than express when we write. I love words. I love having just the right BOMO to say exactly what I hope to convey. And so I find myself often falling back on words that, if, if truth be told, are not words that are heard in everyday speech. And that's fine in conversation. I can be me, and people can go, what a self-important pompous idiot, if they want to. <laughs> but when I'm writing a report for a, an attorney client, when it's going to be going before those who are not steeped, not only not steeped in computer forensic to say the least, but who are not necessarily longtime computer users or deeply involved in modern information technology, I have to stop myself and make sure that if I use an item of jargon, and I, and I like to use the right word, the technical term, because I'm sometimes writing to communicate with an opposing expert, but I think it's important to paraphrase or to use a parenthetical to explain what it is or you know I, I don't i'm not fond of footnotes i think they break the flow of a good read but at a minimum then use a a footnote or some, footnote or some kind of call out to be able to make sure that anyone with an 8th grade education i mean if you know if if your grandparents wouldn't understand what it means then it's probably important to find a way to naturally define it so that as you move through, someone without any technology skill or expertise can read it and understand it. I think that's what we do. We are teachers. Our job is to be technical translators with a foot in the law and a foot in technology. Our job is to be able to both speak geek and speak lawyer. And when we are talking to a drier of fact, whether it be a judge on high or the person who is on the jury, that we speak to them in a way that demonstrates respect for what they know. And I think that it's possible to be able to do that. And if you work at it, to do it in a way that is smooth and not condescending and that. Will allow people not to be distracted by your language, but instead to shake their heads throughout as though they have fully understood all along. People appreciate that. They like learning new things, but they don't want to have to fear that you're speaking about something that they can't possibly understand. Now, the, the second half of that uh, is the use of demonstratives. Before I spent my life steeped in electronic evidence as a forensic examiner and and a guide on electronic discovery. I was a trial lawyer and a plaintiff's trial lawyer. And so for me, my skill, my passion was to develop effective demonstrative aids to support testimony. And I think it's very important. I would say that I probably spend as much time in drafting reports Working on simple, clear, powerful demonstratives to explain what I'm trying to get across as I do on the particular language or even in some instances, choosing the artifacts. Because I'd rather make a few points that really nail the issues for the trier of fact and make those clearly with solid supporting visual. Evidence, uh, then I would ensure that every single bit of of technical minutia is addressed in a report where you lose the trees for the forest.
0: Well, I've I've got to admit, Craig, your your fourth tip is is one of my favorites, and and you you identified about distinguishing. Factual findings from from opinions, and I know I'm I'm constantly telling my staff <laughs> to to that. So I would really I'd really like to hear what if you, if you can offer us some some help in determining that right the the facts from from opinions because I'm sure that's a, a tough road for some folks.
2: Not only is it challenging, but it's a very particular situation. Most of the witnesses you see in the run of the mill case tend to be fact witnesses, lay witnesses, non-expert witnesses are generally only allowed to testify to things that they have observed with their own eyes or that they have perceived with their own senses, firsthand personal observation. But one of the great privileges extended to expert witnesses like you and I, John, when we testify about computer forensics, Mm -hmm. is that by virtue of our experience and expertise and training, courts allow us to express opinions based upon the kinds of reliable information on which persons who are experts in our fields customarily express such opinions. And that's really the power of being an expert witness, is not only the ability to use the proper tools and have the training and experience to recognize what an artifact signifies and in computer forensics to equate those bits and bytes with human behavior, but also the ability to be given a hypothetical set of facts and explain the most likely result, the most likely outcome based upon the standards that are brought to bear within our profession. It's a little tricky, I suppose, to make that decision. And sometimes there's a, a blurring of those lines between fact and opinion. But the beauty, the privilege of being an expert is that we can answer these opinion questions these things based upon hypotheticals and they they can be so
1: useful in helping
2: the trier of fact to understand the issues in the case
1: your your fifth tip craig was to include language addressing the applicable evidentiary standard can you explain that a little more fully absolutely
2: and you see this less with computer forensic experts i think than you do with a variety of experts in such cases uh, as those that involve adverse effects in the use of a pharmaceutical or a medical device or exposure to a toxin where you have allegations that there is insufficient proof, a lack of reliable principles or methods for the expert to express uh, that opinion. Now this is articulated in the law by such things as what's called the Daubert Standard, efforts that have emerged over the years to combat what is derisively called junk science. And so it's the job of the judge acting as gatekeeper to make sure that the opinions expressed by an expert are based on sound science, that they are repeatable, that they have been reviewed by peers in the discipline and that they should be trusted. The risk of being an expert, of publishing a few papers, of being acknowledged uh, as an authority is that you could get carried away with the strength of your own opinions and begin confusing what you fervently believe with what has been established by good science. And I think that it's important to Be aware of the applicable evidentiary standard for the opinions that you're expressing. And in a report, ideally, in order to avoid uh, such things as summary judgment or its summary dismissal, its exclusion, you should attempt to articulate the applicable evidentiary standard and how you've met it in, in reaching your conclusions.
0: Excellent advice. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the US and worldwide. The professionals listed on PI Now understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com.
1: What could be more important than knowing the facts of your case inside and out? CaseFleet's powerful software makes it easy to create a chronology of each case and to track the evidence for each fact. With an intuitive interface, full-text search and built-in document review, CaseFleet makes fact management easy. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com forward slash digitaldetectives and get 10% off your first subscription. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is 10 tips for better ESI expert reports from Craig Ball. Well, Craig, Craig your, your sixth tip, you, t- you talked about advocacy
0: and and letting your expertise advocate for you. Can you expand on that a little bit
2: more for us? Sure. And this is one of those where it's more, again, please do what I say, not what I do sometimes, because <laughs> having been a trial lawyer for 30, I'm going on, you know, 40 years, I guess now. I'm an advocate by nature, but I have to suppress that inclination. So I have to labor to hold myself back when I'm writing a report to ensure that I'm not trying too hard to do the lawyer's job of advocating. So even if you're working for one side, even if you're a partisan expert, uh, not a neutral, attempt to be as scrupulously neutral as you can in your reporting. I think it's important... To strive to both be and sound like you don't care who prevails, even if you are in your heart of hearts rooting for the home team. And if you do your job well, the facts and your marshalling of the facts and your careful explanation of the significance of the artifacts in forensic work will serve to advocate the right outcome without you having to point everyone where to go.
1: That's really excellent advice. I I hope a lot of people listening take that advice. I was interested in tip number seven, which is to challenge yourself and be fair. That struck me as, uh, I don't know, it struck me as something that Craig Ball would say. (laughs) Exactly how do you ensure that you are challenging yourself and being fair? Well, in my case,
2: um, you make mistakes. I think people hire experts with the expectation that we are not going to be wrong. That's why you hire an expert is to give you the right answer, not, you know, just the kind of person on the street guess. And so my worst nightmare as an expert witness is that I will mistakenly express the opinion that someone committed a bad act when they didn't. And having done that once before, I mean, the person was a bad actor. They did a lot of the bad things I said, but I got one of them wrong and I won't I take won't up your time with what it was. I, I wrote a blog about it, hoping others would learn from my mistake. But I look at it and I try to punch hole in my own theories. I try to ask myself, how would I approach this issue if I were working for the other side? Where would I find the weaknesses in my own analysis? And, and putting on the other side's hat is a, a really worthwhile exercise, I mean, nowhere is this more important in my view than when you're doing what I do most of the time, which is working as a court-appointed neutral expert. And so even if I would, even if I hate the other side, even if I think they're a terrible person and I'll be happy to see them fry, it's my job, it's my moral and legal obligation to be fair, to be neutral, because I'm standing in the shoes of the court. And so stop. Stop wanting to be the hero. Stop wanting to win the day and instead find what the truth really is. Every time you do that, you will be better for it. And it's a problem in our profession because we are hired with the expectation that we're going to find the smoking gun. We often are hired by the same lawyers over and over again. And the desire to please can sometimes force us or or allow, allow us to fit the theory to the evidence instead of fitting the evidence to the theory. Well, by that, I mean that we should follow the evidence, not follow the desires of the Mm -hmm. lawyers who hire us.
0: Amen to that. Craig, num- number eight was, uh, I-, I particularly enjoyed as well, proofread, edit, proofread again, sleep on it, edit again. It sort of brings back to memory that, you know, Dustin Hoffman in Outbreak, right? Test it, test it, test it again. <laughs> um, but, um, the men
1: have them I- test it again. <laughs> <laughs> he went but, on with that one.
0: <laughs> but, but sometimes I know, and, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well from in reading expert reports, that sometimes it even appears that they haven't even proofread it the first time. So why, why do you feel that this tip is, is so important for, for these reports? I do think it's important
2: because I'm a snob when it comes to language. <laughs> I am a terrible snob. I mean, for what, the, what they pay us, that we can't make sure that the spelling and grammar yep. is right. Seriously, let me, let me put it this way. They're going to be school teachers on many juries. And if they're like me, and they see that you can't tell the difference between D-H-E-I-R, D-H-E-R-E, and Mm -hmm. D-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E, they're not going to trust your expertise Mm -hmm. if you can't even spell, if you can't make your grammar work. And so, like I say, I'm a bit of a snob, and I realize that modern thinking is, oh, spelling and grammar, that's not what really matters, but I'm old school. This is something that is being presented to a court. It may often be determinative of whether someone's liberty or property will be uh, at risk. And so I think you have to take the time. And here's the, the reality of this. We often are working until the wee hours against a deadline to get these things out. And, you know, working, as the architects would say, en charrette, working night and day, to get this done bleary eyed from looking at hexadecimal values. It is easy to just want to get the darn thing out the door. Oh, I'm just glad it's done. Oh, I, you know, just wrap it up and get it out. But we, We have to make the time to stop and sleep on it and give it a good proof. If you're lucky as I have been in life, you have someone that you can trust who is within the cone of secrecy, and you can hand it off just Mm -hmm. as John, you know, you have Sharon who is is gifted in this area as you are, and you can look at each other's work and bring a fresh set of eyes to it, and you can hear what doesn't sound right. And, And so I say, no matter what, give it a good night's sleep, go back to it. Honestly, I don't think I've ever written anything that I haven't significantly marked up if i just got away from it for a little time and gave it fresh eyes
1: mm-hmm. that that's really remarkable yep. to hear because it's what we tell each other all the time that okay i just finished it i can't i can't read it now but i'm going to read it in a couple of hours or tomorrow morning and it we do mark the heck out of it once <laughs> once we do that review so that's really really useful
0: <laughs> even our staff craig is fearful of sharon's red pen
1: <laughs> but they've also asked me to give them a language lesson, a grammar lesson. So now I've got to devise a PowerPoint to help teach grammar. So uh, there you go, the things one do. Well, Sharon, <laughs> then the big question is, how do you feel about the Oxford comma? Oh, geez. <laughs> no, no, not going there. I am going I am going immediately to tip number nine. All right. <laughs> One that should be obvious, but apparently is not. The tip is to avoid assuming the fact finder's role in terms of ultimate issues. I mean, that seems to be so simple. Why don't more people understand and abide by that tip? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I, I know that here again,
2: it's something, uh, a trap I've allowed myself to fall into now and then, and sometimes regretted it. It is not our job to determine the issues in the case. Now, it may happen that there's a, a, a an overlap with the issue in the case and the precise issue that we are asked to opine about, but not often. Generally, there are a series of issues that are going to be uh, part of the form of the verdict and so forth. And it's important that you not substitute your judgment as an expert for the judgment of the trier of fact, the judge or the jury. And I made this mistake a couple of years ago where I had served a special master in a a very contentious, very difficult case. And I reached a conclusion I I wanted to be done. It was just, there was a lot of impetus to get it done. And so I saw what I saw to be a futile form of inquiry. Basically, I saw enough that I thought I saw the way the court should go. And instead of fully investigating what I saw as being a red herring issue, a, a cul-de-sac that would waste a lot of time and money, I reported on, on, on the outcome that I sh- thought should follow based on the evidence. Uh, and I'm being vague because I don't really want to go into it. We don't have time and there may not be interest. But the point is that by essentially assuming the court's role, and here's what, what you should do, and here's why you should do it. Even though I was special master, even though my job was to advise the court, by assuming the court would follow my advice to the letter, I left out a piece of something the court needed, and I think I complicated the court's job. And it is my job as special master to make the court's life easier, not more complicated. And so as you are doing your work, be sure you aren't cutting to the chase, but instead limiting yourself to only providing information and opinions about the issues that are appropriate for your expertise, not that intrude into the realm of the trier of fact on the ultimate issues.
0: Well, well Craig, your, your, final tip, I think is a, is a little mysterious and I'm, I'm sure our listeners would, would love to, to hear you expand on this is, but that tip being listen to your inner voice. What do you mean by that? You know, in my work, I'm a special master. Now, apparently master
2: was not strong enough for this job that they had to append (laughs) special to. it. And when people refer to you as an expert, it's very easy to start to gain too much certainty, uh, arrogance. And arrogance is just as perilous as too much doubt. I mean, ultimately you have to you, ha- you can't just waffle on everything you have to answer the question that is the job decide based upon competent evidence and your expertise and training but arrogance is dangerous i think we all have inner voices i think there there is always going to be something in in how we've said something or what we've concluded that makes us want to get up in the middle of the night and i i fortunately my my bedroom is just down the hall from from my lab in COVID. And so I can go down, I'll fire it up. I'll load the data and whatever it is, that was that little voice in the back of my head saying, you really need to check this. You really need to go here. Is, is there an inconsistency here? Might you have missed something? So if something feels off, that could be your inner voice telling you to look again. And I think that it's important to get out of bed or drive to the office or fire up your machine And take one more look to be sure that while you don't have certainty, at least you know you've been reasonable, uh, and although perfect is not the standard, that the opinion you've given, you've done so to the best of your ability and not just mentally papering over doubts because you just want to get done.
1: Yes, I think that happens to us all. We want to have it done. Well, Craig, we we are sorry in some ways that we are coming to the end here, but we want to thank you very much for being with us once again. It's always a joy to have you as our guest. And today, I particularly admired, uh, other than your wonderful use of language, I admire the fact that you... you actually talk about your own mistakes and try to use them as illustrations to help others, which I think is a very noble purpose. Many people hate to admit it, mistakes, but you do in a, do so in a very charming way and a very educational way for our listeners. So thank you for that.
2: Thank you, Sharon. And if I could just quickly throw out one bonus tip about reporting, uh, it would be this. Give people who are reading your reports a quick executive summary up front. I like to even put it in a little box at the beginning of my report, so that it's sort of the question presented and the preliminary answer, so that if, if the judge only has time to read that one quick boxed paragraph, then the, the judge will, or the lawyer who's busy, will at least take away my most important finding. And so I think that's really helpful. It gives people a framework as they read what follows to understand where you're going. That's a good tip.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts.
1: And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at S-E-N-S-E-I-E-N-T.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives.
0: Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.